Hello, I'm Yanis Varoufakis. I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Cape diem. Hello and welcome to Navarra FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm joined by my friend and comrade Tom Williams, host of Navarra's Pro Revolution Soccer podcast and co-organiser of Acid Football, which some of you may know from the World Transformed Festival, which Tom has helped to organise. Uh, that should give you a clue as to the subject of today's conversation. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Hi, Juliet. I'm good. Are you all right? I am not bad, although I've spent a lot of time watching Norwich City lately and I really wish I hadn't. Um, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about acid football. Um, do you want to just quickly explain uh, what the concept behind acid football was and what it meant to be involved with it? Yeah, so it was. I think it, it came about as a, as a combination of, of you and me and Keir Milburn, who uh, was, was my co-host for the... Um, pro-revolution soccer podcast that we did for Navarra around the World Cup. And I think the initial sort of animus for it was this kind of Mark Fisher consciousness raising stuff. And it was rooted in, in Fisher's idea of acid communism. And it, it, it ended up being kind of like what, what people were doing in the, at the beginning of the women's movement, which was, you know, women sitting around and talking about their experiences and kind of relating politics to to their their actual lived experience. So we decided to basically try and do the same thing with football, which I think the first time we tried it just ended up with basically a bunch of people sitting around talking about their dads. Uh, but that did kind of, um, it did develop and it did evolve. And the most recent one that we did at the festival just gone um, earlier this month was, I think, in terms of the conversations that were being have probably the most, I don't want to say productive, but, but generative, perhaps, because we, we had people, we had probably sort of 30, 40 people there being very honest about the relationships that they have with the game itself, but also their clubs and being prepared to sort of problematize those relationships, which I think is really, really valuable um, from a sort of a left perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're probably going to pick up some of those threads uh, in this conversation as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been to um, at least two of the acid football sessions and always found them very interesting and enjoyable. And of course, they always close with uh, a five-a-side game, which just reminds us of the uh, the sheer joy and beauty of actually playing football well if you um, score a hat-trick in 12 minutes yes i suppose so julia <laughs> i can't couldn't possibly comment on that um yeah i mean it's, it's interesting to think that you know you and i 
are both very engaged with mainstream football. Uh, I, as I've said, have a season ticket holder at, at Norwich. Uh, you're, of course, a big Southampton fan. Uh, both of us have played at some level or another as well. Uh, I think you played for Bashley um, and I played for Hawley Town as a, as a youth. Um, so both of us have had sort of some engagement with organised, like, relatively sort of mainstream football. And it's there that I want to start because I think for anyone on the left, there have always been concerns about ownership models going you know, right back to the beginnings of um, professional football or even before kind of amateur football that was owned and bankrolled by big companies and sort of sham amateur competition. But I think over the last sort of 20 years or so since Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea, there's obviously been increasing concern about football passing from the hands of maybe kind of local or regional business owners to international oligarchs um, and increasing concern. And again, you can locate this historically going all the way back to the 1930s, uh, but increasing concern about who is given the hosting rights to big international tournaments and you know what that means for supporters, for people working on the stadia, um, for players um, and for kind of international geopolitics, I guess. Um, that's all quite big, obviously. So I want to start breaking this down. And maybe um, the fan resistance to the European Super League is a good place to start. So during the pandemic, uh, a number of European clubs, um, the ones who've tended to sort of dominate the UEFA Champions League in recent years, uh, got together and announced that they were hoping to join a, a closed shop European Super League. Uh, and there was huge pressure, even at a time when political organising was pretty difficult, huge pressure online and in real life um, to stop this. And they did stop it with the, the mitigation that the um, the existing Champions League format has been uh, altered to make it even more uh, exclusive uh, and kind of self-reinforcing uh, in terms of the financial distribution of its uh, spoils. Um, so I wonder, Tom, what you thought of that campaign, how successful it was, and maybe, you know, if there's anything to learn from it. Yeah, I mean, I think the first... And perhaps most important thing I have to say about this is that you often hear people say, you know, the kind of against modern football brigade, you'll say, well, no, I'm just not interested in it anymore because it's, you know, football's just so capitalist now, which is, I can understand why they say that, but I don't think that's entirely accurate. I think it's much more accurate to say that capitalism is in football and football is in capitalism, but there's more in football and that includes resistance. And the really alienating experience of supporting our teams during COVID times, I think probably made us yearn for the sort of community and commonality that's kind of unique to football grounds, actually, more more, more than ever, really. Um, but sort of returning to this thing of like football being in capitalism and capitalism being in football, it's, I'm kind of riffing there on like Jason W. Moore, um, what he sort of conceptualises in Capitalism in the Web of Life, which is about capital's relationship with the environment. And, and he calls it a, a double internality. And I think this kind of gets us further into understanding the fiasco of the European Super League and a lot of other sort of left interpretations, really. Because capitalism, capitalism organising organises football, but not in conditions of its choosing. And football doesn't, as we saw just allow itself to be organised, it resists. And contemporary football is constituted by struggle and by contradiction. Um, 
And I think that's really, really important to remember. And the, the, that sort of the debacle of the, the ESL, the European Super League, as you know, a lot of people on the left quite excitedly pointed out at the time, was was an opportunity, but it had to be understood and it still should be understood as an opportunity to move beyond a sort of a woolly anti-capitalism that ends with critiques of billionaires and sort of critiques of quote unquote unfettered capitalism and, you know, the bad apples and the 1% or whatever. I, you know, I remember somebody writing in The Guardian at the time about how it's, oh, it's, the problem is unfettered capitalism. And I, I kind of felt like saying, you know, that meme, you know, the L problem is capitalismo. I, I felt like sort of like leaping into that conversation and saying that basically. No, it's not, it's not that, you know, the problem isn't unfettered capitalism. The problem is capitalism itself. But I do think it presents an opportunity to sort of like build consent for socialist values and, and you know, perhaps more broadly popular self-confidence. Yeah, I think that that really makes sense. You know, it's sort of it's important, I think, to think of the the European Super League as the logical next step of um, the socioeconomic forces that are shaping football in the way it has rather than as a you know significant break with them. Um, so the defeat, at least for now, of the European Super League was a rare instance in which it felt that football fans and players could defeat an organisation bigger than an individual club. Although I think the way they did it was largely to put pressure on their own individual clubs to pull out of the project. And there is this sense that, you know, the big governing bodies of football are not very accountable. There's, uh, to say the least, um, David Goldblatt's book, The Ball is Round, is really good on how FIFA went from being this sort of stuffy gentleman's club sort of dominated by Western Europe and South America to a point to the exclusion of everyone else to becoming this sort of genuinely global institution under the presidency of Joao Havelange. Uh, but this being done in a very kind of corrupt and backhanded way uh, with the sort of various scandals that you've seen play out with them over the last couple of decades. Um, and if you want an illustration of this, Barney Roney's article in The Guardian on... Um, what happened to the people who are in the room when Qatar got awarded the 2022 World Cup in 2010? What's happened to them since? And the sheer number of them who've either been in prison or um, expelled from football or not tried for lack of evidence rather than sort of lack of suspicion. Um, you know, there is a sense that those institutions are very hard to reach and very hard to hold to account. And I think a lot of us would have seen the uh, jaw-dropping speech by uh, Gianni Infantino, um, ahead of the 2022 World Cup, where he claimed to be a member of pretty much all the um, groups who had you know, been on the wrong end of um, Qatari sort of suppression or labour laws. Um, that was just really quite staggeringly um, arrogant and ill-judged, even for FIFA. So, you know, I wonder what you think about those organisations at this point. You know, the fact that the 2022 World Cup, uh, everyone I knew on the left talked about boycotting it and pretty much everyone I knew said, well, what's the point? You know, I, I can't have any impact on this whatsoever. You know, is that a kind of defeatist attitude or simply just like a realist one? I wonder what you think about that. Well, Kira and I wrote an article for Navarra about this at the time, which which basically contended that the level of organisation necessary to make a boycott effective didn't actually exist. And so what we needed to do was use that tournament as a starting point to, you know, may, maybe think about boycotting the next one because 
if you you know the countries that are hosting the next World Cup are not you know one of them's the United States of America. It's not exactly woke. So, uh, and, and, you know, we, we, I kind of felt, feel like we were sort of howling into a, the void a little bit with that because it, it's, it's just sort of not happened. And one of the things that we, we talk about a lot, actually, or one of the sort of strap lines almost of the, the acid football project has been to say, well, you know, do, do you as a fan leave your politics at the turnstile? And I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of people do. Really, I mean, one of the one of the most sort of kind of ooh moments that I've ever had doing doing the acid football stuff is this this person said at the very first one when we created the institutions of the working class, we forgot to democratize them, and that was that was just a really kind of salient thing on so many levels because if you know you look at the various kind of like workers parties across you know Europe and across the world probably but also if you look at football clubs which you know arguably were not institutions of the working class um, in every case but but in many cases were you know there was no there were no mechanisms really created when when those institutions were founded to to make sure that they they did sort of stay ours yeah yeah i think that's really true and um it has been very yeah instructive you know watching efforts to um even just reclaim individual clubs or you know how fans react to clubs being bought out by international oligarchs um you know there are some fan organizations defeat the worst successes but the competitive structure of football has often meant that supporters and even supporters you know, on the left, will welcome um, fairly unsavoury people if they promise to bring their clubs a higher level of material success. And the responses to the mm. um, Emirati takeover of Manchester City or the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United in, in England are fairly instructive about this. Um, and even where sort of fans have taken ownership of their clubs, this can sometimes be a temporary measure and uh, as a Saints fan of course you will uh, not appreciate Portsmouth being discussed on this podcast but yeah, Portsmouth famously had a series of disastrous owners um, in the late 2000s early 2010s including one who may well not have even existed um, <laughs> and eventually went into fan ownership um, and this stabilized the club to quite an extent but in 2017 the club was uh, the club received an offer from a group called the Tornante Company which was run by uh, Michael Eisner former Disney CEO uh, and the fans on the committee like voted to sell the club to him you know in the hope that it would um the investment would uh, lift them up the leagues again um i should say at this point this this is my only beef as a southampton supporter as a as a socialist or communist southampton supporter with Port, portsmouth football club you know I, I i genuinely do think that that rivalry is completely ridiculous most of it is like just completely made up and there's a load of apocryphal nonsense to sort of support it it does divide the working class it is bad it shouldn't happen but you know my only my only beef with pompey fans is that they had a fan-owned club and then sold it to some 
guy from Disney. It was just a completely ridiculous thing to have done. I mean, I suppose they're doing okay now, aren't they? I think they're top of League One. But yeah, that that struck me as a sort of a historic misstep, to be honest with you. I do think with the, I do think there is a a, a way that we should sort of problematise fan ownership though from the left because as you know as a Marxist uh, and a subscriber therefore to the labour theory of value I, I think it is sort of um, I do think it is a bit of a problem to say well we should have you know we, the, the means of production should effectively be owned by by consumers rather than by by workers actually so i think that i think we perhaps need to sort of move more towards sort of a hybrid because you you know i i totally accept that um you know football fandom is perhaps what Marx had it been a sort of a going concern in those days in the 1860s might have identified as a secondary form of exploitation in the same way that you know being a private renter is um but yeah, I, I do think we sometimes forget about the players in all of this. <laughs> well, yeah, um, in A People's History of Football, Mikhail Correa is very uh, interesting on the story of Socrates, the great Brazilian midfielder of the 70s and 80s, and his role in self-organising at Corinthians in Brazil. And, you know, this is obviously a pretty rare example of that level of self-organisation, you know, um, you can talk about the unionization of football players and indeed Correa does and you know, talks about the establishment of the Professional Footballers Association in England and their fight to abolish the maximum wage in 1962, uh, led by George Eastham of, of Stoke City in England. But, you know, usually that unionization is kind of where it has ended. And even then, you know, the players are not particularly vocal themselves about their own unionisation, let alone kind of wider, you know, workers' organisation or, or socialist causes. No, it's it's usually, you know, somebody like Gary Neville uh, uh, appointing themselves as a shop steward because Rio Ferdinand forgot to piss in a cup. <laughs> well, quite. And, uh, yeah, one of, one of football's more vocal Keir Starmer supporters now, I think, but, um, <laughs> which is maybe the best you can expect. Uh, a, a few left opportunists rather uh, left with egg on their faces over Comrade Neville. Well, yeah, quite. And, you know, I mean, you wrote a great article about Matt Letizier for the new socialists and sort of <laughs> dangers of uh, having a footballing hero and trusting their politics. And, you know, indeed, I did the the same with Grant Holt, who uh, rose from being a part-time footballer and tyre fitter to being a sort of somewhat implausible candidate to make the England squad for 2012 while playing for, for Norwich and, uh, you know, built him up as a real kind of working class hero. And then he came out and said, I've always voted Tory. Um, and of course, played up front for Rochdale with one Ricky Lambert, who yeah. is currently um, famous for having conversations with glasses of water. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's why you should, you know, maybe, you know, as a football fan, I try not to get too invested in the individual personal politics of players and sort of treat any good ones as a bonus rather than sort of, you know, the norm. But, you know, is there anything fans can do, you know, in terms of sort of organising, you know, do you think they can or should be trying to work with the players? I think 100%, yeah, but the, the problem or a problem with, with that, though, is that they they have such different sort of material conditions. You know, footballers at the elite level are, 
they're they're unusual in that they are really well remunerated and whereas most people are not but but also it's it's probably important to, to to say that most football clubs are not sort of typically value producing uh enterprises um there's the old joke how do you make a small fortune out of football and it start with a big one yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, they are. Uh, I mean, it's it's also important to say that the goal, the end goal for sort of like members of the capitalist class buying and owning football clubs is still always profit. You know, even you know the Saudi Arabians owning Newcastle United. You know, p- part of that is is to do with sort of like Gulf states wanting to diversify and augment fossil fuel revenues and you know we hear a lot about sports washing which maybe we'll we'll get on to a little bit later but the goal is the goal is always profit whether you're you're buying a club to sell it later on for a profit even though you know you're going to get killed on labor like whether it's that whether it's a kind of a, a pr thing or a sports washing thing i don't particularly like that term also we can come on to that later you know the, the goal is still always profit you know it's always profit um but football clubs themselves are really bad at creating surplus value that can be converted into profit <laughs> partly because the players are properly paid or really really well paid in some cases overpaid you know, i don't i don't always subscribe to that but you know the 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 um the odd one or two you do think my god you are stealing a living i mean i the one that sticks in the memory for me is that you know carlos tevez at manchester city getting paid two hundred thousand pounds a week to play football and like refusing to do it uh which you know, i thought was was really quite staggering and you know much so i want to support a worker yeah I, I i have a real problem with these with these players being described as having gone on strike actually because strikes are, are democratic, <laughs> you know. Industrial actions are usually and and you know should be democratically cohered. When you know Virgil Van Dijk goes on strike, quote unquote, because he just wants to go and play for Liverpool rather than playing for Southampton, that's not strike. That's just refusing to do your job <laughs> and actually kind of scabbing on your teammates. Frankly, mm. yeah, quite. So let's just wrap up on the fan-owned clubs then. Um, you know how what are the sort of limits limits of this uh in england the most um successful fan-owned club at the moment i think is exeter city who are sort of just about holding their own in the third tier league one much is made of the german model of the 50 plus one model where clubs are supposed to be 51 percent fan-owned so that you know private interests can never have a majority on the board but one big exception to this is rb leipzig who are not Mm -hmm. allowed to call themselves red bull leipzig um but the red bull company have found a way of owning the club that meets the letter of those laws whilst kind of like driving a truck over the spirit of them you know, I think given the the fact that you know a lot of football fans are motivated by the prospects of success more than anything else, do we think there's maybe an inherent limit to to these kind of fan owned clubs, and is it something that's maybe better done as a sort of alternative to mainstream football? I think the RB model is sort of morbidly fascinating for reasons you've just outlined, but but also because they have this. They have a really a similarly disruptive playing model. I mean, without I mean, I'm going to go into sort of like geeky game model um, stuff brief briefly now. But they, this is an oversimplification. But they they have this they have this play style that involves basically funneling the ball into the middle of the pitch 
where possible, sometimes deliberately losing the ball in, in order to just create as much chaos as possible. And, and, and the reason they do this is that they can't yet afford to just sort of like financially outmuscle the likes of Bayern or in, in or in Germany or in this country, you know, the man cities of this world. So they, they kind of have this way of creating chaos in which they feel they can thrive. Um, and I think that kind of links to this sort of slightly wacky model of, of doing things from a business point of view that they have. They're basically a sort of like football equivalent of Kendall Roy from Succession. They, they have this kind of like, yeah, we're the disruptors, man, thing going on. It's, it's you know, very unedifying, but also it, it sort of on some levels puts enough noses out of joint that it's sort of entertaining on some level. <laughs> All right, well, let's move away from, uh, from them um, and move on to, you know, these sorts of ideas of... Um, Football as sites of resistance. Uh, there's a very long tradition of, of football as a site of resistance to power, and uh, indeed, Mikhail Correa's book, A People's History of Football, opens with the Lord Mayor of London banning football games in 1314 because the sort of you know, citywide, largely impromptu football games that were held um, held on uh, holidays uh, were seen as you know being sort of dangerously unruly, and. You know, this sort of interesting thing about football traditionally being seen as this working class sport. Um, and again, David Goldblatt's very good on this. He talks about how the rules of the game were sort of appropriated and codified by British elites um, who dominated the first 10 years or so of the FA Cup, um, which obviously they organised. And as they started exporting football to the colonies and further afield, you know, particularly South America, workers clubs or clubs that were sort of organized around industry or just organized around industrial centers like sort of Preston or Blackburn in Lancashire uh, started to first win the FA Cup and then set up the Football League. So the idea that football is sort of solely a working class sport is a bit of a myth, I've always thought. And indeed, Gramsci was writing in 1918 about how the capitalist bourgeoisie used football to help them achieve cultural hegemony. So there is this long tradition of sort of football being both a sort of means of wielding power and controlling the working classes and the working classes resisting it. And um, both Goldblatt and uh, Korea talk about clubs like Spartak Moscow in the Soviet Union, Barcelona in Franco Spain, um, Al Ali um, at Tahrir Square, their fans organised during the Arab Spring, the um, FLN team in Algeria that was set up as a sort of player's resistance to the French occupation of, of Algeria. So there is this very long, uh, long tradition of football as a kind of site of resistance. And again, I mean, what do you think of that? Are these exceptions rather than the rule? Are they over-romanticised? Um, are they useful models or are they kind of fairly sui generis? I think the answer to all that is probably yes, but I don't. I don't think that sort of like delegitimizes them at all. I think the sniffy attitude to it, um, traditionally adopted by sort of bourgeois liberals, reflects actually what is possibly their whole animus, which is a fear of the mob. Now, Korea, in this wonderful book, actually talks about how they. You know, they initially sort of look at this kind of weird 
custom of booting a football from one end of a town to another and were horrified by it, basically, <laughs> because I think it did sort of demonstrate a set of potentialities around really high-level civil disobedience. So they thought, mm, you know, we'd better sort of get a handle on this. And rather than stopping them from doing it, they, they just thought, OK, let's codify it and let's, uh, and let's codify it in a way that allows us to sort of control it. They've typically disliked it, I think, for the same reason they dislike protests and industrial strikes. And they've only really started to like it in the last sort of you know, 20 or 30 years or so. Um, since it's started to be presented as a sort of potlatch for capitalism, actually. You know, you, you look at these, the last couple of World Cups, they, they, they were very much like, let's, let's kind of celebrate international capitalism. There, there, there's definitely that aspect to it. It was unspoken. Um, but, but certainly the kind of the attitude of, of the Qatari government and Gulf states generally is like, you know, we're, we're going to use this, this thing to kind of legitimate ourselves as kind of a part of this, this global system by kind of attaching ourselves and cloak, cloaking ourselves in, in, in this sort of hugely popular global sport. And of course, literally cloaking the, the, the greatest player who's ever played the game in, in a literal cloak uh, during the presentation of the, the World Cup after, you know, arguably, arguably the greatest final that's ever going to, that's ever been played. But, but a final that is always unfortunately going to be sort of sullied rather by the spectacle of, of Leo Messi wearing this, you know, it was a traditional kind of Qatari garment, but it symbolised something sort of other than that. Maybe a better image of resistance is the Argentinian goalkeeper, <laughs> Ellie Martinez, <laughs> taking his golden cover award and putting it over his crotch yes. uh, in the sight of... Um, of, of a very um, senior Qatari official, and I mean, indeed, I uh, I made a little version of uh, Frederick Jameson's postmodernism, the cultural logic of uh, late capitalism, <laughs> with uh, that as the cover image, which I hope I hope gets picked up from now on. It's very um, on brand. Yes, I mean, a, 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 you know, a really a crass action that, that kind of like was entirely in keeping with quite a crass tournament, to be honest. It was exactly what that tournament deserved. It was, think, yeah, yeah. It, um, it, it was. My son, my six-year-old son, has taken to imitating that when I'm uh, playing. <laughs> playing football with him in the garden I'm sort of loath to uh, forbid it to be honest but. <laughs> well yeah who knows maybe one day he'll be you know lifting a trophy in some sort of like oligarchal petrol state and, uh, oh fingers crossed yeah you know, you'll, need, uh, you'll need some gesture of resistance <laughs> from him but um, yeah let's not go too far off topic with uh, yeah fantasizing about what uh, what your son may or may not achieve in the uh, realm of football um so we can talk about some sort of existing alternatives to mainstream football i mean i have been involved with some of these on a quite personal level i've played quite a lot in the lgbt football circuit so i played in the didn't you win the world cup i didn't win the <laughs> cup i won the shield uh which was for teams that got knocked out in the first round and uh, i played um <laughs> i played center forward uh with a kuwaiti guy called abdullah who had been stationed in england to learn english and in the gym one of our players for brighton bandits we were called at the time uh, met him and recruited him for our team 
and he was an incredibly good player as long as the other team hadn't seen him play before um, because he just didn't pass like ever. Oh, right. uh, so once you'd seen him once, you're like, right, we'll just put three people on him and he's kind of useless. But um, he was incredible. So he was my strike partner um, in this tournament. Um, and of course, I've also played for like women's teams. So I've played for the Surrey women's team and we played a really interesting game against Afghanistan's development team last year who had left after the Taliban came in, the first team had gone to Australia, the second to Leeds, I think, ultimately. Um, and this was the subject of an incredibly spiteful uh, BBC piece saying that the Afghan players weren't all kind of proper footballers, quote-unquote, um, and so shouldn't have been given asylum, which you know, I thought was a frankly disgraceful response, but it was nice to um, do something through football that felt like it was you know, doing something really good for people escaping a horrific situation. Um, and I've also played a season for Clapton Community, set up in London in um, 2018, uh, in opposition to the ownership of the local Clapton team. And the club, you know, is quite um, assertive in its left-wing politics. And, you know, uh, you can see banners at the game against transphobia, against the um, occupation of Palestine. Um, you know, the club and its fans try and do sort of community work. And I don't know, you know, I mean, obviously the Clapton men's team are playing in, I think, the 10th division, the women's in the 6th. Um, so they're not playing at a you know very high level. But, you know, I wonder how useful you think ventures like this are. I think... I think Clapton is is the model, personally. Like, not not for like a post revolutionary moment, but like, for, you know, think you know, in terms of football having to exist in and alongside capitalism, I think I think Clapton is the model. But I also think that sort of rather than just sort of like lionising Clapton, which we should, we we shouldn't sort of stop there. We and we should actually say, well, look, you know. Your club, whoever you support, it's Norwich, Southampton, United, Arsenal, whoever, your club needs to be seen as a site of struggle like any other, like in the same way that your workplace should. So like try and try and apply the try and try and organise, even if it's like real sort of like baby steps, to try and get a foothold and, and move to move your club. I know it sounds kind of like mad and wacky and impossible, but like you've got to try. You know, that's really, you know, being a socialist is kind of an arrogant thing to be from from, from some perspectives because it, the, the web of capitalism is, is so kind of complex and um, kind of overbearing. But, you know, we've got to try. And I think, you know, fans, whoever you support, you should be trying to organise at a grassroots level to sort of at least, you know, start by maybe setting up a sort of a socialist society. You know, I'm saying this to somebody who has completely failed to do this as a, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a Southampton supporter, but I'm going to try. I promise you, I, I will try. So I think, you know, look at what Clapton have done and are doing and try and apply it to your own club. And I guess that sort of, you know, leads us on to thinking a bit more about the question of uh, what we can do. Um, you and I were both, you know, at least critically supportive of, of Corbyn's Labour. And one of the things that most sort of pleased me was the the interesting kind of joined up thinking about football. Uh, and of course, you know, trying to attach yourselves to football is a sort of classic populist move. And, you know, this can range from David Cameron telling you he supports Aston Villa or occasionally forgetting and telling you he supports West Ham, you know, right through to uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in... Um, Turkey, who was a semi-professional footballer for Kasim Pasha, 
who very much attached himself to the successful Turkey team of the late 90s and early to sort of mid 2000s um, and has been very, very involved with the running of football to the point of basically helping to bankroll a club that would disrupt the traditional monopoly of, of Istanbul teams who, you know, wouldn't really tow, tow the line. Um, I guess what I'm saying here is that, you know, there is this sort of overbearing sense in which football, you know, has been put to reactionary ends. Um, and, you know, my feeling is that alongside fan organisation, you know, in the stands as well as, you know, in communities, there is a need to intervene in the running of football and the sort of upper levels of it. And the Labour Manifesto, um, you know, had a sort of philosophical understanding of this. Uh, it offered supporters trust the ability to appoint and remove directors and to buy shares in their clubs. Uh, it called for a levy on Premier League television money that would be redistributed to a grassroots level. Um, as with most other things in the 2019 manifesto, and particularly the stuff that the likes of us are the most excited about, this is probably going to be thrown out um, because, you know, sort of, the current Labour administration's uh, corporate backers are not particularly going to like it. So if that avenue is closed, what else can we do? What can we push for? Where is it useful to to push for it? I'm going to start by, by sort of pointing out that it, it probably didn't hurt. I mean, I don't know how involved um, how involved he would have been, but John McDonald's chief economic advisor at um, during that period was a guy called Rory McQueen and I think Rory's sort of like up until he, he he took that job like his main thing had been editing a late and orient fanzine so it probably it probably didn't hurt that you had people who would who were genuine football fans like working for Corbyn and McDonald around that time in terms of what we can do well you know I, I think this is what the left needs to do um, broadly anyway, re- regardless of whether it's football or anything else. And, and that's actually sort of like look towards extra parliamentary movements. You know, if the parliamentary route is blocked, well, you go somewhere else, don't you? You know, you, you might, some people continue to maintain that the Labour Party is still a st- site of struggle. And I think whether you agree or disagree with that, I think it is important to offer solidarity to the comrades who are still kind of fighting on that on that front but if you're not and you know I'm not you have to you have to sort of like direct your your energies elsewhere and I think sort of grassroots campaigning around um around football is 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 as useful a a thing as anything else particularly because if you have you know if if you're able to kind of achieve the sorts of things that the likes of Clapton have it can be um prefigurative of different and better ways of living frankly you know it's you know community organizing projects and stuff like the mutual aid stuff that was going on during during the lockdowns you know I I think that really sort of prefigured better and kind of more more sort of like communal ways of living so i think that's that's the way to go extra parliamentary the extra parliamentary route is the way the way to go for the left generally at the moment but also you know we shouldn't we shouldn't neglect point of production struggles and i wonder if there's that there are ways in which um the, the trade union movement could kind of um involve itself in football actually yeah i mean one of the most interesting chapters in the Mikhail correa book 
is on interwar football and you know obviously the kind of uh, consolidation of the um, October Revolution in Russia, the failure of the revolutions in Germany and Hungary and elsewhere, uh, and the rise of fascism in Italy and Germany and, and Spain um, and certain parts of um, Central and Eastern Europe as well. Uh, you know, um, Correa uh, chronicles various socialist and anti-fascist efforts to organize their own teams and tournaments, you know, particularly in the sort of mid-1930s as the situation became more polarized, attempt to organize a, a Workers' World Cup in 1934 in opposition to the one that was being staged in fascist Italy. Uh, benefit matches arranged for Ernst Thalmann, the um, head of the uh, German Communist Party, who was put in prison pretty soon after the Nazis came to power. Um, you know, I wonder how useful these sorts of models are i mean you've talked about trade unions um but you know most places in the west at this point don't have sort of left-wing or even particularly liberal governments uh and don't really have sort of particularly powerful left-wing parties either so i wonder the possibilities of, sort of organizing like meaningfully large-scale alternatives to um something like the qatar world cup um, whether that's something that could ever be possible, and if so, how we might work towards it. Well, I mean, you know, this kind of kind of brings us back to the the acid football thing, and I, I'm kind of conscious that I'm at the risk of sounding like a broken record on all of this stuff. But as as Keir and I and you have have been saying for three or four years now, the the, the sort of the, the the degree zero of political organisation is coming together and talking. And sharing experiences until you start doing that, that there's sort of there's really not a great deal of scope. Once you, once you do start doing that, and once you once people start to realise that their problems are not sort of personal failings, and that they are actually linked to structural causes and structural reasons, that's that's where kind of the the, the green shoots start to appear i would say so the you know the first thing you can do I, I would say is you know have little socialist societies that are kind of linked to football or, or if football's not your thing cycling or, or running or you know i know a couple of people who who have tried to organize a socialist running club which i think mm. sort of taken off to some extent so you know do that do that sort of thing yeah absolutely and yeah these are things that people were doing in the late 19th and earlier 20th century and you know, it just strike me that, you know, in lots of ways, lots of socialist institutions and organisations do just need to be built up again from that grassroots, as you suggest. Um, and yeah, you know, I do think football could be a good site of struggle. I think as the game does get taken over more by, you know, big corporations and petrostates, etc. Um, hopefully, you know, consciousness raising through football should become a bit easier. What's driving this sort of the, this kind of interest from Saudi Arabia? It's the Saudi Public Investment Fund and the PIF is the Gulf States Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is part of Saudi's strategy for diversifying to sort of augment. Like they, they're not, you know, there's this kind of myth that they're planning for a post-carbon, a post-carbon world. They're not doing that. They're not interested in a post-carbon world, but they are interested in, in diversifying and augmenting fossil fuel revenues. So as well as investing in things like Uber and Boeing, the PIF is an 80% controlling stake in Newcastle United Football Club. And it also now owns four Saudi Premier League clubs. And they are not shy about waving their money around. Uh, the particular interest of these clubs in 
Chelsea reserve team players really raised eyebrows given the relationship between Chelsea's ownership and the PIF. But I spoke to um, a friend and football writer called Karl Anker about this, and, and he basically said this is a this is a bit of a, a red herring. And when I asked Carl what was going on, his initial response was just another question. He said, what did you buy with your student loan? Which I felt like, well, it's a weird question. But his point was that if you've suddenly got more money than you had before, you spend it, right? And Carl, Carl said, Saudi Arabian football clubs have got a lot of money, and they've been told to go and spend lots of money. And the most gettable players in Europe right now tend to be players that Chelsea have on the chopping block. So the accusation that Clear Lake and the public investment fund is one hand washing the other is basically, and this is Carl's verbatim quote, you're asking too much competency from rich people, right? So for all the suggestions of corruption, the Saudi Pro Leagues, um, I called it the Saudi, Saudi Premier League earlier, that was, I misspoke. The Saudi Pro League's pursuit of players no longer wanted by Premier League clubs is more a case of newly rich organisations spending money that they've never had before on players they, they could never have hoped to acquire before. And football fans, not for the first time, barking up the wrong tree for partisan reasons, right? <laughs> the real story here is that Saudi Arabia is doing a China. And that's that's quoting Alex Stewart, who's another sort of friend of the show who we had on our pro-revolution soccer. So Alex, who set up the, what's now a hugely successful TIFO football and now works as head of content for this thing called Analytics FC, told me that basically China launched this thing called the Long-Term Development Plan back in 2016. And the aims of it were to become a good or great national side, host a World Cup and ultimately win a World Cup. Um, because China had long recognised that sport is helpful in accruing soft power and sort of strengthening national pride and identity and generating revenue. And as well as wanting to alter their economic model, China wanted to alter the global perception of it as a sort of a backward authoritarian regime, which stymied attempts at diplomatic relations. And a Chinese Super League was seen as, as a key to sort of achieving those aims but those plans were mothballed for a variety of reasons but like including capital flight now Saudi Arabia Alex reckons will be far more successful and that again this is a quote they'll get a world cup if they want it right so Qatar's staging of last year's tournament for which they didn't even need a decent domestic league suggests he's probably right about that and the key to all of this, the key thing to understand is it's about soft power. There's loads and loads of talk around the game at the moment of sports washing and lots of fans believe that this means Gulf states buying PSG and Newcastle or hosting World Cups in order to whitewash their images. That's not really what's happening. You know, you talk to another friend of the show, David Waring, about this. They will say, you know, David will, will tell you, no, what they're whitewashing or sports washing is the relationships between, like imperial core states like britain france and those gulf states yeah that's really interesting especially even it's been sort of unofficially confirmed that saudi arabia are going to host the 2034 world cup uh, so they are going to get one uh but there's also been you know a couple of other interesting little uh developments around this i mean you know it's important to remember that previous attempts to do what the Saudis is doing with football you know have failed um you mentioned china there was also the indian super league um when you and i were coming to football it was the japanese j league where attracted quite high, high profile players and obviously that doesn't really happen anymore the australian a league um the north american soccer league in the us and canada in the 70s and 80s 
you know, all of these things either kind of collapsed or ran out of steam and they all had the same model, which is, and again, Major League Soccer now um, in North America, they all have the same model, which is to buy kind of aging superstars. And the problem with that is the fans often go and see these aging superstars like once or twice. So like, right, I've seen Pelé or Messi or Lineker or, you know, uh, whoever, um, I don't really need to see them again. Um, and, you know, in terms of the Saudi project, Jordan Henderson was booed off the pitch at Wembley by a number of people, myself very much included, for having gone to play in Saudi, you know, in contravention of his previous support of the LGBT community in England. And um, it was revealed the other day that the team Stephen Gerrard manages in the Saudi Premier League were getting attendances of about 700. Um, I have played in front of bigger crowds than that. And so there is this sort of sense that, you know, there is still some kind of fan resistance that means that, you know, these sorts of soft power projects might not be entirely successful. I mean, I think that's completely right. I mean, for, for Gareth Southgate, who, you know, we shouldn't forget, was actually pretty good on Black Lives Matter back in, in 2021 and actually stood up to a lot of the biggest roasters in the country clobbering him in, in the press or attempting to do so. You know, for him to say that it defies logic for, for people to be booing Jordan Henderson, you know, it's, this is not like when John Barnes got picked on by England fans back in the day for, like, probably quite heavily racialised reasons. This is This is somebody who has really kind of turned his back on a community that he sort of almost, you know, he... he a big part of his personal brand, so to speak, was was being a sort of an LGBT ally. And he, he completely turned his back on that. It's, uh, I mean, to say it defies logic for people to be angry about that is just completely unserious, frankly. And I think this is, you know, this is another way in which, you know, football, there can be resistance in football and there should be resistance in football to, to this sort of thing. And... Um, you know, I think David Goldblatt has, has talked about this, but it, it actually has the kind of potential for, for massive levels of civil, civil disobedience, actually, if taken to its sort of logical conclusion, particularly at a time at which um, creeping authoritarianism at, at state level is sort of like moving increasingly towards criminalising protest. I think a, a Starmer-led Labour government will lean into this perhaps even more heavily than, than the Conservatives. And um, when that sort of thing happens, the material conditions that are kind of leading to people taking strike action or, um, you know, generation left want, wanting a sort of a more equitable society, they don't just go away and their demands don't, don't, don't just sort of dissipate. So when, when that happens, when, when you're kind of, you know, when the parliamentary route is blocked, when a protest gets criminalised, well, what, what's likely to happen? Well, frankly, it's likely to lead to riots. You know, if you, you, you look at, you know, a, a historical materialist approach tells you tells you that's what's going to happen. If you, you know, go right back to the kind of bread riots in the early stages of the British Labour movement. I'm not necessarily uh, calling for riots on a, on on Navarra <laughs> FM, but 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 yeah, maybe you know I could I I could totally see why people could end up rioting, and why football might be a sort of a, a frontier of that actually. 
All right. Um, Who's to say where the writing is good or bad? Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's not for me to comment. But yeah, I guess there's that, that final question then, you know, is that, you know, is it useful to turn our backs on high level football? I mean, you've just suggested that, you know, that could be a, a serious site of, um, of, sort of civil disobedience. And, you know, exactly the kind of thing that worried the Lord Mayor of London back in 1314. Could we see a, a modern day peasants revolt coordinated through uh, through football? But but yeah, you know, is it is it useful then to, you know, just have this kind of against modern football attitude of of just sort of turning your back on on contemporary football or not? Um, I think not. I think, you know, I think we have to sort of take our politics into into every space really but I uh, which sounds like a sort of slightly cringe inducing thing to say but I do think it, <laughs> it, it it is true and I think it's perhaps useful to think about what happens if we don't do that you know if if the left isn't in football what what's going to happen to football well, it's going to be taken over by the the right and the forces of reaction isn't it so I think we need to be there and I think we need to be sort of having these conversations and I think we need to be having them in an increasingly organised way, mm-hmm. actually. And I don't, I don't think that's a crazy idea. You know, I, I think when we think about when we think about the game and why we love it, I mean, there's there's two kind of strands to it. I think, like, and I and I always say that what, the way we like to see football played is to some extent as subjective as our taste in music. But when you see the beginnings of a goal, whether it's a pass from Busquets into Xavi that bisects two opponents, meaning that Xavi suddenly <laughs> has space, or whether it's Andres Andros Townsend cutting inside from the wing, about to smash one, you know, from or, the outside. Or my of, personal favourite, which is your mate Fraser Forster, just drop kicking the ball about eighty yards. Xavi being <laughs> baffled by seeing a ball bounce, and uh, future Charlton Athletic striker Tony Watt breaking through to make it Celtic two Barcelona nil, well, despite them go. having had about fifteen percent of the possession. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there you go. When you see the bit, you know, when you see the beginnings of a goal, even as a neutral, there's this feeling that you might be about to see a work of art created before your eyes in real time, mm-hmm. and that can exist separately from the narrative side of football, whether that's a sort of a self-contained narrative of one game or the meta narrative of a tournament or a season. And I suppose a lot of the most memorable goals bring all of those things together. You know, the Aguero against QPR one probably being a, a, a good example of this and sort of builds up quite slowly but also it's the sort of like it's the kind of climax of a season but what it also brings together when it's kind of at its best is this sort of extraordinary sense of community and kind of like parafamilial relations that are just it's it's almost intoxicating and my dad always my my dad and I my stepdad actually have been going to football together for God, since I was eight years old, I think so, like 35 years. And we're now at a stage where we're going to be going, hopefully all three of us, with, with my little boy. And the, the feeling that you get when you go through what I just described with another person or with a bunch, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of, of other people, it, it's almost indescribable. You know, it's almost indescribable that kind of the richnesses that the one can experience through this sort of love of association football 
and the kind of like mass communal experience of it. it and I just think that is so worth fighting for. You know, it is, that is so worth fighting for. Absolutely. No, completely agree. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we will uh, continue to do so. And it's something that you'll pass on uh, to, uh, you know, a younger generation. Um, and yeah, that's one of the real beauties of, of organised football, I think, the way it, you know, brings communities together in, in this kind of way, even as, you know, sort of conflict and competition is very much structured into it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of maybe personalising this too too much, but couple of seasons ago you came down and stayed with me didn't you when Southampton were, were playing Norwich and we had a great time you know yeah <laughs> had, had, a, had, had a nice time in the pub and the result was maybe sort of 10% of the whole experience of it yeah I mean you had a nicer time with that I, than I yes did, for, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know I, I'm, I'm sort of I'm very against gloating so like yeah I'm, absolutely I'm, and you know gloating against Norwich is sort of you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty hollow experience so, anyway so, I mean yeah you know, <laughs> um, it's like sort of taunting a child, really. Um, mm. All right, I think that's a nice place to stop, much as I could talk about football all day. So, Tom, thanks for joining me. No, thanks for having me, Julia. It's been really lovely to talk to you about football. And listeners, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.